to Proverbs uh, chapter 2. I've introduced kind of a study with our young people in Proverbs and um, really interesting uh, in our introduction, the first two chapters, uh, you can hold your place there and be making your way as well to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just kind of hold your thumb in 1 Corinthians. Uh, I meant to mention it a moment ago, but I want to offer our congratulations to Drake Lyles. He'll be graduating this coming week uh, from patrol school, highway patrol school. He's got his card, and uh, you ask Marty, he'll show you a picture of him in his uniform. He looks a lot like his dad. So, uh, but uh, just remember, uh, Drake, in your prayers, uh, we all know, we watch the news, and we know the environment we live in today, so it's not, uh, it's almost like he's re-enlisted in the Marine Corps. Uh, it's just as maybe even more of a threat uh, to his life nowadays. So just remember Drake and your prayers and all of our uh, law enforcement officers as well. I uh, appreciate Marty uh, sharing that with me. I knew he was getting close to graduating, so um, that's no, no easy task, by the way. The message title this morning is reference in, in reference to security, uh, secured in a threatening world. Uh, one of the things I thought about as I was reading in Proverbs was uh, the role wisdom plays in providing for security uh, in a world like we live in today. Uh, we are obsessed with security and obviously for obvious reasons. Uh, we have concealed carry more and more. I was heard a statistics the other day. I was talking about the explosion of uh, concealed carry permits, uh, people buying firearms. Uh, you can't go anywhere uh, where you're not on film today, it seems. Uh, up and down the streets, people have those nest cameras or whatever they're called, and uh, oftentimes some perpetrator of some crime is caught simply happening to go by someone's security camera. Uh, we're an insecure nation in many ways, and for good reason. Uh, violence is on the rise, corruptions, um, thievery, all sorts of things uh, are unnerving for us. I, I, I remember we did it to some degree when we were kids, but my mom uh, tells me often uh, of how nobody in their community ever even locked their doors. Sometimes in the summertime, they left the door open and the screen door uh, might at best have the little latch hooked on it, but, um, but they trusted people. You didn't have to worry about your neighbor or who might come into your home. And we've steadily moved away from that to where now everything's practically locked down tight. And I'm convinced that one of these days, perhaps it'll be the mark of the beast, but uh, many people will, will rejoice in some system that will secure us in our economy or in our commerce where our identities can't be stolen and we'll be secure and we'll be uh, gladly. I've even heard people say they thought it was a good idea uh, that some sort of chip be implanted that would be a biochip that would be somehow connected to our life. So as long as we were living, it was valid. And if we died, obviously uh, it wouldn't work then. But they praise something like that to secure once and for all uh, all of this commerce and our security. Uh, I remember when the COVID first set in on us and one of the first messages I preached uh, after the COVID was uh, involving the idea of the fear of man brings a snare. And I remember making the point that I'd always thought in terms of that meaning fearing other men brings a snare. But 
in the context of what we were dealing with. And the more I researched that, the more I realized that I think what he's saying there is man's fear itself produces the snare. Because when we're fearful and insecure, we make snap decisions and we give up whatever liberty we may have for the sake of security. So it's important that we understand what security is or how security is available to us, particularly as believers. And that's what was really brought to bear in chapter 2 of Proverbs as the writer is introducing the idea of wisdom. He personifies wisdom as a woman. He calls it her numerous times. And he makes reference to the security there. In fact, verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and the fools despise wisdom and instruction. And he continues that in verse 33 of chapter 1. He concludes that first chapter with this verse. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. And so there's something about our security that's directly related to our listening to God. And yes, I see this terminating ultimately in Christ. In fact, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 24 and verse 30 make reference to the fact that Christ has become to us the wisdom and power of God. Not only wisdom, but redemption and restoration and uh, sanctification and righteousness. So Christ has become that for us. So when I'm reading this today, I don't want you to stay focused specifically in, in Proverbs. I want you to keep thinking in your mind that this finds its terminus in Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God to us. And so what we're reading today may be a pre-incarnate uh, reflection or shadowing of the fullness of wisdom who was to be manifest in the person of Christ. And in our union with Christ, he literally is the wisdom of God to us. But I want to look at the practical things involved in this wisdom this morning because I think we desperately need it to find our security in a world that's really shattering or trembling at its foundations. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 2, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as a hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the path of justice. And he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be present, pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you and understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. 
for her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the pass of life. So you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the pass of righteousness. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. Father, we thank you for your word. As always, we are dependent upon you for the very thing that we are concentrating or considering this morning, which is wisdom. And Lord, we are in dire need of that wisdom in our generation today. The, the deceptions have become so ingrained in, in our thinking in general, Father. And it's, been, it's, it's even been influential even within the church as we've been hearing so much on Sunday night. And it's so easy for us to have embraced subtle heresies and subtle departures from truth and, and how these things even shape the way we perceive your very word. So, Father, we are coming to you this morning. We are dependent upon you. We are crying out and lifting our voices this morning for this wisdom. Lord, I thank you that it has been provided for us ultimately and fully in the person of Jesus Christ and in the incarnation, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and, and in your choice of us to bring us to yourself through him. And so, Father, I pray that we will not get caught up in, in the preliminaries in regards to wisdom, but that we might follow the course all the way to Christ himself and that his name might be exalted here this morning. We ask in his name and for his glory. Amen. As I already mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1, it is really uh, that which is necessary to true wisdom. Uh, it is Christ. Uh, in that passage, actually, more precisely, it's not just Christ, but Christ crucified. And that is, uh, he says in that very passage, to that, to the Jews, that was a stumbling block. Messiah, crucified? How, how can it be? We're reading of the Messiah in our law, and, and there seems to be no indication to us that he will be anything other than a triumphant king. And so they hailed Jesus when he came into Jerusalem riding upon a donkey. Crucified? Stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it was foolishness. What great king would be martyred at the hands of his enemies? What great king would die and be unable to overpower his enemies? The, the Gentiles and the Romans and the natural man looks for a great and mighty king who will conquer all the enemy. Cross, crucifixion, curse, shame. Not for, our, not for a warrior or not for a king of our understanding. So the, to the Gentiles, not just Christ, but Christ crucified was foolishness. And to the Jews who were looking for a sign, it was unthinkable. It was, it was a stumbling block to them. And the result was both by their very nature rejected Christ. But it says God has chosen the things that are foolish in the eyes of the world to confound the wise of the world. He chose just this Christ and just this means or method by which he might be the conquering king to be a cross. And that same Christ has become to us wisdom. What Solomon speaks of in our text today find is, is its object is Christ. In fact, if I've already said it finds its terminus or its conclusion or fulfillment, you might say, in the person of Christ. 
You see that reflected in Proverbs 1-7 where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. So what begins with the fear of the Lord is realized in Christ. That's why I think it says so often that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. To reverence the Lord properly and to follow Him properly leads us to Christ, ultimately, who is the wisdom of God to us. So it finds its fulfillment in the person of Christ. And I say that so that you might be guarded against disintegrating Christ from wisdom. Some might say, I'm following Christ. The other might say, I'm pursuing wisdom. And we might segregate ourselves, the wise and those who are pursuing Christ. And we might disconnect those as though there is no relativity or relevance to those two things. Well, if you're a seeker of wisdom and you exclude Christ, you will not find wisdom. And if you are a a believer in Christ and reject wisdom, you will will underestimate Christ or you will devalue Christ. For He is the wisdom of God to us who believe. So don't separate the two. In chapter 2, verse 1, you see a couple of what I call here preconditions for the acquiring of wisdom. The first, I think, is recognizing or realizing the instruments of it. He says here, my son, if you will receive my words, it's kind of a condition here. If you, would, if you want to receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, then do this. So the preconditions here are recognizing the instruments of God's wisdom which are His words or His commandments. You might say commandments in terms of the law, but you might say His word in terms of the law and all that is revealed to us through, by God through the Holy Spirit and through the authors that He moved to record His divine word. So the instrument of God's wisdom is this book that you have in your hand. The pursuit of wisdom to the exclusion of the commands and the Word of God is an exercise in futility and and an exercise in self-exaltation. You will not arrive at wisdom. You may get knowledge. You You may even be able to navigate in this world and even shut down those in the wisdom of the world with a greater worldly wisdom. You might become the intellectual to to achieve above all the other intellectuals in the world, but you will not achieve this wisdom apart from the Word of God. These are the instruments. This is the instrument of wisdom. I'm amazed how often we can conclude that we're becoming wise as Christians while very rarely, if ever, studying the Word of God. Ever contemplating it and considering it. We read devotionally, shut our Bibles, and we go out to live the Christian life. That's wonderful that we're trying to live faithfully the Christian life. But there is no wisdom to be garnered or to be gleaned apart from the serious consideration of the divine Word of God. To whatever capacity the Lord has given you and utilizing all the instrument that He has provided, particularly to the church. Young people, to your parents. So there is no wisdom to be found apart from these instruments. But secondly, I think he indicates here is that we're to embrace these instruments as well. Notice he says there, receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. 
There has to be a receiving of the word. Obviously, there's a divine operation involved in there, but it seems to me there's an active exhortation here to open the Word of God and to receive the Word. Accept them unto yourself. Bring them in, as it were. Open the gates of a hardened heart and receive the Word. The Bible, New Testament says, engrafted. So there is a receiving of the Word, an acceptance, an embracing of the Word of God as exactly what it is, the divinely inspired Word of God. Not only is there a receiving of that, but there is a treasuring of it. I love the phrase, if you will treasure my commandments, my son, within you. Treasuring, assigning appropriate value to. You know, the Word of God stands apart from all the writings of men, as genius as they are in many cases, even the religious scholars, even the spiritual giants of our day. I think of many of the Puritans and others as as exalted and glorious and instructive as their writings are. They are distinct from the Word of God. Of none of their writings is it said that they are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And they are only effective and helpful insofar as they point to the Word of God, which is described as alive and acting and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? That's where wisdom comes from. That is the source and the instrument. And it's not enough to just say, okay, this is the Word of God. This is where wisdom comes from. But it's more. It's to be open to receive them and to treasure them and to value them as distinct from every other word in the universe. That's where wisdom begins. That's, That's a precondition for the acquiring of the wisdom that we're speaking about this morning. I would add, I didn't plan on this, but I think about the living out of the Christian life with that view. Then you add in the crucibles of life by which all the dependency upon the wisdom of this world pressed out of you to where this word becomes truly authoritative to shape your life and your thinking in regards to everything. So that's involved in this acquiring of wisdom. But he's speaking here specifically of these instruments. I love that he says, within you, within you. And I think that includes the the whole of man, his intellect, his emotion, his will, his passions, his desires. Open the word of God. Recognize it as distinct from every other word. Recognize the divine inspiration of God in his word and receive it unto yourself and digest that word. Give it the value that it ought to have in your life and then let it sink down deep within the fullness of man. Don't just, don't just entertain its precepts in the intellect, but let it transform the heart. Let it move the affections. Let it stir us to a devotion and to a love for God. That's one of the things I love about the Puritan writers is that they were so precise in their language and so theological in their language. But there is a passion, there is a desire and a yearning for God pouring from their speech. Many of them seem to have captured this ideal, the power and authority of the truth of God's inspired word, but taken into the innermost part of man and transforming the man and revealing to him a glorious God who above all other things and all other persons 
warrants and it deserves the full devotion of men. These are the preconditions in verse 1. But I love as well there are preparations for wisdom, I think, that he mentions in verse 2 through 4. Notice by these that you cannot be passive in acquiring wisdom. And this is hard for me because I, I'm so dependent upon the grace of God and I'm absolutely convinced that every, every capacity I have to obey God is a mercy from God provoking in me the very desire to obey God. So, so, so I'm balancing that in my own thinking and I hope you will as well. But verse 2 assures me that the acquiring of wisdom is not something that's passive. This is an exhortation to you. Make your ear. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart. There seems to be a calling for individual responsibilities now involved in this acquiring for wisdom. It's one thing to acknowledge that the Word of God is the instrument of that wisdom and to embrace it and to, and to be moved by it is a critical part of acquiring wisdom. But you have to set yourself now in preparation to receive that wisdom. It's not passive. You're going home and you're closing your Bible or if you're reading on the surface and never meditate deeply upon the Word and you're waiting for some divine action to just by osmosis make you wise without investing or acting to pursue and to seek that wisdom, you're deluding yourself. And you're going to have a long wait. If God's given us the instrument of that wisdom in His Word and we, not, and, we, and we neglect that Word and we're passive waiting upon this wisdom, why would God answer that particular seeking or lack of seeking? He says, you're, make your ear attentive. Interestingly enough, in chapter 1, I shared this with the young people, but uh, it always struck me strange because he personifies wisdom as a woman and he says, she's screaming. She is screaming in the public sphere. Down around the city square, she's lifting up her voice. And I asked the kids, I said, last time you went to town in the public square, did you hear anybody screaming? Especially wisdom? No, I didn't hear it. In fact, we see all kinds of crowds and masses and they gather, gather at the Panthers games and 60,000, 70,000 people cheer in unison. All kinds of noise and wisdom, he says, is screaming in the midst of that. But you didn't hear her because you were listening with the natural man's ears. And so he says here, when he says, make your ear attentive, I think he means here to attune our ears to hear the wisdom of God. Sometimes the unspoken wisdom of God manifests in the negative. As we watch society fall apart and grow more and more corrupt, she, wisdom is screaming out in the midst of that, saying, beware, beware, this is the conclusion of forsaking God. Wisdom is screaming, but have you attuned your ear to hear her when she screams? And so it's not passive. We begin to cultivate, as it were, through the Word of God and through prayer, uh, an attentive ear, an ear that hears. You ever wondered why Jesus said often following parables, to those who have ears, let them hear. That's exactly what he means. There is a hearing that is of divine origin and there is a natural hearing. Those whom God has given ears to hear, let them hear. Everyone else won't hear it. And if you don't believe that the world doesn't hear wisdom screaming from the town square, take a look at the town square. 
Go take a real close look at it. We're getting farther and farther away from reason and rational behavior. Now the irrational has become the norm and accepted behavior. And those who are acting normally are viewed as the opposition or the odd man out. You're the strange one. If you believe in heterosexual marriage for life, you're the odd one. You're the intolerant one in our generation. Wisdom is screaming all around us. We're not to be passive. We're to be actively cultivating and training an ear that hears the voice of wisdom. But I love that he says as well, he doesn't leave it in the realm of the hearing, but also of the heart. And it spoke to me of a sensitivity a sensitivity to the voice of God, the wisdom of God speaking in those same environments. How often, I, I tell the story often when I was a young Christian and I was teaching Sunday school class occasionally and we had a Sunday school party and, and I remember in the, in the joviality of the, of the situation I told a joke and it wasn't a horrible joke but someone might be say, well, it was a little off color and, and I told the joke and everybody had their laughs and the person who responded didn't do it in a rebuking way. He literally meant, you ought to tell that one in Sunday school Sunday. And as soon as he said that, it was like a fiery arrow just stuck right in my heart. And the voice I heard in my heart's conscience was, yeah, why don't you tell that one Sunday morning? And that spirit of God knew that I wouldn't dare tell that in a Sunday school class. And the obvious conclusion is, why are you telling it now then? If it's not going to be funny in Sunday school, then it's not appropriate or funny in this context as well. That's what I mean by a heart sensitive to the wisdom of God speaking in circumstances. That's what I wanted to pursue. That's the wisdom of God here. Attune and a cultivate an ear that is attentive to it and a heart that is sensitive to it as well. In verse 3, he says twice here, sort of a parallel statement, cry for it, lift up your voice for it. And I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing that as saying pray for it. The writer himself here, whenever he was realized that the entirety of the life of Israel was going to fall upon his shoulders and had one, one desire, one request of God, you remember what it was? Wisdom. How can, I, how can I account for such a mass of people and for the endless, infinite variables involved in leading this kingdom in a way that would please God? Oh God, I am overwhelmed with the task ahead of me. What must I desire from you? Wisdom. Wisdom. So the very author of this, of what we're reading here is saying that part of the non-passive pursuit of wisdom is to pray for it. I love that he says cry for it. Don't just pray it as some rote prayer. Don't just speak it monotone. Let the heart feel it. Let it erupt out of our sense of inadequacy and our complete overwhelm in the variables of this world and all the wickedness and all the things we're trying to take into balance. And let us realize that we are, we are unqualified and completely in ourselves inadequate to, to exercise any discernment in this world. Oh God, let me grant me wisdom. When's the last time you cried out for wisdom? 
I don't like tough times in my life, but you know something? Looking back on those difficult times when they pressed me to get to that place and I cried out for wisdom of God, sometimes that wisdom uh, was brought to bear in my life and shaped my thinking in ways that I made decisions in that moment that later turned out to be wise and proved themselves to be of divine origin in many ways, even if I was making them from some other motivation. Why? Because I understood in that moment my inadequacies and I cried out for wisdom. And so should all of us be doing that today in our generation. Go into the circles of academia and see if you can match intellects with the intellectuals of our day. And they will, they will, if they don't silence you all together, they will argue you down and try to humiliate you. I don't know about you, but in and of myself, I'm inadequate to engage with the intellects of our day. But oh my God isn't. And so I cry out to him for wisdom. I lift up my voice. That's where I'm getting the prayer. Pray for wisdom. Solomon prayed for it and God granted Solomon the wisdom. In fact, he's the wisest man to ever live apart from Christ Jesus and walk the earth, I believe the scripture testimony is. They say they come from afar to hear the wisdom of Solomon. We remember the incident where it was first displayed and the two who disputed over the, over the possession of the child and, and his wisdom granted to him by God, Solomon proposes a solution. Bring the child, part him, give each one half. Justice, equity, right? It's what you want in the world. But Solomon had the wisdom to know that the true mother who loved the child would never allow the child's life to be taken. Her love would be, she would give up the child out of her love for the child while the other one would gladly see the child parted despite the true mother. And so when Solomon saw that the woman wanted the child spared, he understood in that moment this is the true mother and he assigns the custody of the child to the mother. You think that's Solomon's wisdom? You think that's the world's wisdom? I would have been afraid to do that because I would have been afraid both of them were so bitter towards one another they would actually let the child die rather than acknowledge that they were lying about their, their parental or their parent's role in that child's life. But Solomon was granted this wisdom of God so we ought to pray for it. In verse 4, you see this as well. But he says, if you seek her, for if you cry for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures. And so there ought to be a, a serious seeking for wisdom. I love it here because he compares it here in a sense to something of great value. I asked the young people this morning, if you go after silver, does it grow on trees? Do you just get it at the jeweler's? No, if you're going to go after silver, you're going to have to dig into the earth. And you're going to have to sink a shaft down to the depth where there's a vein of silver, of silver ore. And you're going to have to chisel away with your picks and your hammers. And you're going to have to drag all of that ore up out of that mine shaft. And then you're going to have to work through that and crush all that down and extract from it the silver. And then you're going to collect that and filter all that down and then put it together and melt that down into silver bars. And then that'll go out to the jewelers and they'll exercise their arts upon that that silver and fashion it into some great thing of value. Does that sound like a passive activity? Anybody ever heard of a, a passive silver miner? <laughs> I've not. In fact, he's a, if you heard of one, the next phrase about him would be he's a poor silver miner. 
Because if he's passive, he's not getting any silver. He's got to dig a hole in the ground and start mining for the silver. I think that's what he means here by not being passive. If you desire wisdom, if you would acquire wisdom, seek for it as though you are seeking the greatest treasure, far more great, far greater than silver. There's nothing more treasured than this wisdom that you're seeking. Seek for it in that way. I say it this way. Invest yourself. Do the labor. Do the work of searching out and acquiring wisdom. Primarily, that's in the Word of God. But I think, again, it extends out into the living of the Christian life and the bringing to bear of the truths, first and foremost in our own lives and then outwardly as we go through this world. And the difficulties and obstacles you encounter doing that will themselves become part of the working through by which God provides wisdom. I've always said this about myself, but... But I always, mom even said it when I was a kid, you're one of those kids who always say has to learn the hard way. You just can't take my word for it. I tell you the truth and you go out and test it as though mom might be wrong. And you find out that mom wasn't wrong after all. And then you would think you would transfer that lesson into the next one, but you don't. You go right back out on the next precept I give you and you think mom's wrong again. And over and over and over again, you thought mom was wrong. And every time you've proven she's right. When will you begin to assume that maybe mama's right more often than she's wrong? Sometimes I think we're hard-headed. Wisdom is shouting from the streets and in the square. We see it all around us, but we haven't attuned our ear to hear. We haven't inclined our heart to be sensitive to her. We haven't invested the work trying to acquire this wisdom and to seek it out. We haven't set a value upon it as something precious to be sought out with our lives. And we preoccupied our things with all sorts of lesser temporal desires and comforts. And as a result, we've become like the ones that she warns against in chapter 1. The naive ones who go on oblivious and the foolish ones who are crushed by the wickedness of this world. They won't hear a reproof, she says, in that chapter. So this is the seeking and the searching for it. In verse 5 and 6, you see the fountain here from which that wisdom flows. I love this, but he says, when you do all of this... Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. When, you, when you've invested this way, when you've sought it out and acquired it, all the while you thought you were seeking something, and it turns out you were seeking someone. Because he says, then, after this, after this application, after this non-passive pursuit of this wisdom, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. Look what wisdom discovered. Look what the pursuit of wisdom discovered. The fear of the Lord. You've come to know Him. And not only that, but verse 6, I think, drives it home. For the wisdom comes from the Lord. So when we're pursuing wisdom, the greatest wisdom we find out is that wisdom itself proceeds out from the Lord. It is the Lord's wisdom. In essence, it is the Lord that we're seeking. And that changes everything. For the Lord gives wisdom, he says, from his mouth, his word, comes knowledge and, and understanding. Two things there. He gives it. He gives, this, he gives this wisdom. So I take that as a mercy and a grace. And he speaks it. And I take that as his word. 
I wrote this in my notes, thinking about this and meditating through this. Wisdom, if it comes forth from God, will not contradict the nature and character of God. Neither will, neither nor should it become ever an occasion for self-exaltation. If you read in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, chapter, uh, verse 1, chapter 30 and beyond, he gives, Paul gives that reason. The reason God has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise of this world is so that what? So that no man may boast. Though that every man's most may be in God. And so I, I say this, and, and I was concluding this from this. So in other words, I think it would be proper to say that the wisdom that comes from God should always be marked by true humility. Because it understands that this isn't arriving or deriving from me or necessarily from my efforts, although those efforts are instrumental in acquiring it. But with exercising all of these elements and instruments, I find that the source of that wisdom is God himself. And so if I have wisdom, it is the wisdom of God or it is no wisdom at all. This is why they came from all distant lands to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Why? Because it wasn't of Solomon. There were wise men in the world. There were other wise kings here and there. I read some history of the Asian continent and of some of the Chinese dynasties. And there was great worldly wisdom involved in some of those things. And, and maybe even some ignorant, blind, stumbling upon some eternal truth as well. So there wasn't a, a void of wise people, earthly speaking, but there was none speaking like Solomon. And they came from all around to hear the wisdom of Solomon, not because it was his own, but because it was God's wisdom spoken through a vessel. I'll, I'll go through these more quickly, although I hate to do it. In verses 7 through 12 and 20 and 21 as well, you see the blessing that wisdom bestows. Notice here, it really struck me, but there's a shift in language. Because he's been referring to wisdom as she, and even it to some degree, but he shifts here, beginning in the verses. Look in verse 7. He stores up wisdom. He is a shield. We've been talking about an it. We, we personified her as a woman, but we, generally we've been talking about an it, wisdom. So I'm taking this. It's not specifically wisdom that stores up sound wisdom for the upright, or wisdom itself that is the shield to those who walk in integrity and guarding the path of justice. It isn't wisdom per se that is preserving the way of his godly one. It is him. That's the big difference. That's exactly why the Paul, the New Testament writer could say, Christ has become to us wisdom from God. He is what the one who is preserving us. And the instrument by which he is preserving us is this thing called wisdom, which is the very mind and thoughts and hearts of God through his word and the truth of God being manifest or communicated out to us from God. But he is the one who preserves us. To me, that's important because that guards against prideful knowledge. In other words, yes, I am seeking wisdom, but if I, if I finally think I have achieved a certain amount of wisdom and therefore I can go out into the world confident in my wisdom, then I'm moving away from this dependence upon God. And He's the one who preserves the way of the godly. He's the one who delivers us. He's the one who provides all these other things, not me. But there's a subtle shift that can happen there if we're seeking a thing and not a person. Because if we ever achieve the thing, we might take it unto ourselves to believe that we are now in control of our future. But you are not. 
There is a gracious and sovereign God Almighty who is wise, infinitely wise. In fact, who is wise in such a way that he made the wisdom of this world foolishness. How did he do that? Because he, he, he chose to save men through the foolishness of the message preached. Christ crucified. Foolishness. Foolishness to the Gentiles. A stumbling block and outrageous to the Jews. But yet to those who are called, he says in verse 24, it is the power and the wisdom of God Almighty. That's a big difference. That's a big difference. The blessing it bestows. In verse 7, it sanctifies its possessor. The one who possesses, the one who is possessed as it were by God and the wisdom of God. It has a sanctifying effect on them. Verse 7, he says, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. By the way, I thought about that in terms of maturity and growth. I was sharing with the kids. If you store up something, what are you doing? You're amassing it. And so this introduction into wisdom, this realization of the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, sets the stage for God to build now into your life with increasing amounts of wisdom. He stores up wisdom for the upright. Which tells me that there is an introductory condition by which you are to grow in maturity and wisdom in God. And you think about that. If you get that wrong, if the entry level is wrong, then you've got something there that's not from God. And God is not obligated to, to extend and to build upon what's foundationally off. That's why if you just pursue knowledge and knowledge is all that you have and not the wisdom of God and not the humility that God produces, you've got a, you've got a base that doesn't go down far enough and God's not going to build the weightiness of who He is upon a, a weak base that'll only collapse. That's why the wisdom is the beginning of the fear of the Lord. Reverencing God is the beginning of wisdom. That's a promise that wisdom will grow if it's being built on the right foundation. Why? Because he stores it up for the upright. He's not trying to deprive us of us or give it to us, meter it out in some minimalistic way. He's building it into us upon the right foundation. So it sanctifies its possessor. It provides for maturity and growth in wisdom. And then this transition of language here through wisdom. He, God, has become for us, verse 7, a shield. Verse 8, he guards through that wisdom the path of justice. In the same way that he preserves the way of the godly. It was interesting the descriptions he gives of these people who have been transformed by this truth of God's word. He mentions in verse 9 the discernment, provide discernment here, righteousness and justice. In verse 10, the heart transformation, knowledge. This really struck me in verse 10 particularly. He says, for wisdom will enter your heart and this phrase, knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. And I thought about that. Well, what would, what would knowledge do to the soul without wisdom? And I thought it, would, it could be devastating I mean, those who designed the, the, the atom bomb had great knowledge, but, but what was the result of that? It had potentially deadly consequences. We dropped two of them on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the death toll was massive. You may make the argument we saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives, because we didn't have to invade Japan at that moment, but that's raw knowledge. That's raw knowledge, and it could have devastating effects. 
At minimal, knowledge alone without wisdom would produce pride. And, and it might produce an embracing of, of knowledge in an oppressive sort of way. The heart is not liberated by it. I shared with the kids this morning. Here's what happens when I just have knowledge without wisdom. I, I glean some new understanding of some discovery and I bring it into my heart and I think to myself, how could I have missed that? I lived all my life ignorant of that reality or that knowledge and it immediately occurs to me, what am I missing now? What's the vast array of variables and unpredictables in the world today that I have no way of taking into account in my next decision. And their knowledge then with me without wisdom becomes oppressive and stifling and, and binding to me. It, it's frightening to me. But with wisdom, knowledge comes into the soul and it is pleasant. That's a, that is a huge difference. The Bible tells us in Proverbs, knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge makes proud. Knowledge itself, apart from wisdom, has all kinds of negative consequences in time. But knowledge combined with this wisdom that comes from God and recognizes God as the source for that wisdom. Paul says in the New Testament, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why are you boasting as though you didn't receive it? When you recognize that this wisdom comes from God, then it makes the knowledge that comes from God sweet to the soul, pleasant to the soul. Why? Because I'm not dependent upon my vast knowledge to navigate through this world. I'm dependent upon a sovereign God and a gracious God who is infinitely wise and for whom the world is no surprise at all. So there is discernment. <clears throat> There is this heart transformation and then there is understanding. This deliverance from evil in verse 12. Closing real quickly. In verses 12 through 19 and 22, I'll just try to finish this way. Knowledge, this sort of wisdom that we are acquiring distinguishes us. Distinguishes us as God's people, certainly. But in verse 12, it distinguishes us from those on the evil way. To deliver you, he says, from the way of evil from the man who speaks perverse things. So, so we're, di we're distinguished now by this wisdom from God as those not on the way of evil. It is not our path pursuing evil. We distinguish ourselves from the world. Look around the world. It looks to me that many are on this path of evil. And it goes from one evil to the next. And they, they exceed each other and they intensify in their evil as they go. It removes us from this evil way. In verse 12 as well, it distinguishes, distinguishes us from men who speak perverse things or with perversity. Have you ever, do you ever know of a more perverse time in this nation than we're in right now? I mean, it is such a wicked, perverted, upside down culture. You can't even watch a commercial anymore. You can't let your kids watch a, a, a TV show without being there to supervise it, mute the channel or turn it off at any given moment because you don't know what's about perversity is about to be displayed across the screen. And I think it's intentional in this generation. Let's acclimate and condition the children for perversity. I think I've said this before, but way back when they first started the, the little children's beauty contest and they had those shows on TV and everybody was going to be a beauty queen, I remember thinking to myself that when I saw clips of that first show, I said, that is a pedophile's dream right there. 
And we have a media and even people who are enjoying it and being entertained by that, oblivious to the fact that they are perverse all around the world who are being fed in their perversity by just such a thing as that. And we're a culture who is promoting it. This wisdom distinguishes us from the man who would walk and speak in his perversion. Verse 13, it distinguishes us from those who are walking in darkness, from those who leave the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. When we have this wisdom from God, we are not walking in that darkness, and it distinguishes us as those who are not. You can't walk in darkness and claim to have the wisdom of God. In verse 14, it distinguishes us from those who are delighting in evil. That was a striking verse. These people who delight in doing evil and they rejoice in the perversity of it. They delight in the evil and the more perverse it gets, the more they rejoice in it. The wisdom of God distinguishes us from those people. We're different. And by being different, we bear a testimony or we bear witness to the wisdom of God and the glory of God in that dark culture. That's part of why we are light in a darkened world. Because we are distinguished from that very world by the very nature of our calling. And by the wisdom that God grants to us in Christ. Verse 15, we distinguish ourselves as well from the crooked and devious men this world, verse 15, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. In verse uh, 17 is, or 16 as well, it distinguishes us from those who have been drawn away by the temptress. I'm calling her the adulteress here, and he gives a lengthy description here. There are some wider applications there, certainly, but the ideal here is the adulteress who draws us away from the God in whom we are in covenant with. Always present. Amen. And I don't mean just, just the literal version of, the, of those who would sell their body and the, draw someone away from a marriage, but I'm talking about spiritually speaking. There is an adulteress always drawing us in, away from our covenant with God, away from our relationship with God. She manifests herself as too busy. She manifests herself as, as herself as career. She manifests herself as relationships she manifests herself as entertainment and leisure and vacations and she manifests herself in a lot of ways but her design is the same to draw us away to draw us away from our covenant with God but if we're faithful to God if we pursue this wisdom that God provides, if we walk in relationship to God and live our lives according to this wisdom from God, then we distinguish ourselves from those who are being drawn away by her as well. His final words here in verse 20 to those who would be followers of God, those who would receive this wisdom and acquire this wisdom from God. He says, so to you, he says, so you will walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous. But the alternative, verse 21, verse 21, for the upright will not only live in the land, but he says, but, uh, and the blameless will remain in it. So we're living our survival in the land and our sustaining in the land. You could make that spiritually speaking in this realm, uh, somewhat peace we have here. If we walk in this wisdom, we may be made able to abide and live in the land and even be sustained in the land. But when the mass of us begin to move away from this, we will not soon we will not long hold the land. In fact, I think we've ceded much of it now in regards to what made it the land of liberty that we once enjoyed. 
But he finally begins in verse 22, but the wicked. What about the wicked? What about those who neglect this wisdom, the, the naive who walk by and will not hear the reproof of wisdom crying in the streets? What will become of them? He says, the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. You can read back in chapter 1. Uh, verse 23, wisdom is saying here, turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you and I will make my words known to you. But then she says this, because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. Guess what happens? When your calamity comes, she's going to be laughing. She's going to be laughing at you. Isn't that true? If you, if you neglected wisdom and you went on your way and you ran headlong into a, 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 a rock fall and it just crushed you under your way, doesn't it feel like wisdom is saying, I told you so. You should have listened to me. That's what he says. When that, because you have resisted this and pushed it away and went on in your naiveties and your senselessness and in your rebellion, when calamity comes upon you as a result of your horrible decisions, then that day wisdom, this personified wisdom, will be laughing at you because you rejected her. He says, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they're not going to find me then. Because why? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated or filled with their own devices. For their waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. And then this verse for us, but he who listens to me shall live securely. That's why I entitled the message that this morning. You want security in a shaking world, in a trembling world? It feels like it's about to fling off into space at any given moment in its corruption. Then seek ultimately the Lord and seek the wisdom of the Lord. Stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this day and for the opportunity to gather as your people, Lord, thank you for the, the strong rebuke of this, uh, particularly chapter 1 and even here in chapter 2. But, Father, thank you for the instruction and the hope that's offered as well. When we're seeking to acquire wisdom, Father, it turns out that we are seeking you. And Father, I thank you that Jesus has been for us, has been made for us wisdom and power from you. Lord, I thank you that he is for us wisdom and righteousness and, and redemption and sanctification. He, is, he has become these things to us. And Father, we thank you for that union by which we are preserved. But Father, in a practical way, I pray that we might employ, that we might apply some of these lessons in our own pursuit of wisdom. Father, let us not pursue wisdom for wisdom's sake, but pursue wisdom as a means by which we might come to see you more fully and that we might grow in our dependency upon you alone. Have your way in the moments of invitation, Father, by this same word, by your spirit, speak to the hearts of those who are here today and accomplish what you will for this day, for this moment, for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.